Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible Study Teaching Podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. Amen. Well, last week we started the book of Philippians, and we really didn't start the book. We went back to Acts chapter 16, and we looked at how the church was planted. And if you guys remember from last week... Paul goes to Philippi, he goes down to the river, there's a bunch of ladies praying, God opens Lydia's heart, she's the first convert, she gets baptized, the church begins to meet in her home, then there's the slave girl that's demon-possessed, that's following Paul around, he casts out the demon, her owners get upset, and so they cause a riot, and things get crazy, and Paul and Silas get thrown in jail, and they're praising the Lord in jail at midnight, and then an earthquake comes, and that everybody gets freed, and the jailer is about to kill himself, and Paul says, don't do that, and he says, what must I do to be saved, and the Paul says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you'll be saved, you and your household, and so he gets saved, and so that's how the church is planted in Philippi. Now, at the end of the book of Acts, Paul is in prison in Rome, and that is where he's writing back to the Philippian church from prison. So I want you to remember, because we're going to look at that tonight, everything that Paul says is in the context of him being in prison. Okay, so last week we just looked at the first two verses and it was more of a, just an introduction. Uh, this is the letter, Paul and Timothy, servants of Jesus Christ to the saints in Philippi, grace and peace. And then actually tonight we're going to start the actual letter. So we're going to start with the thanksgiving and that's in verses 3 through 8. In almost all, not all, but almost all of Paul's letters he begins with either a thanksgiving, or he begins with a prayer, or he begins with a blessing. Okay. So before Paul gets to practical application, he's going to thank the Lord for the people, or he's going to talk about his situation. He's going to give thanks. So let's read together Philippians chapter 1, 3 through 8, and let's see how Paul gives thanks. Okay. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, Always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart for you are all partakers with me of grace both in my imprisonment and in my defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you with all affection of Christ Jesus. So Paul's giving thanks for the Philippians as he remembers them. And in verse 4 he says, I'm making my prayer with joy. Now I said this last week and I'll keep saying it. The main theme of the book of Philippians is joy in the gospel. Joy. And so notice what Paul says. I'm, I'm making my prayer with joy because there, verse 5, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. What was the first day Paul's talking about? 
Remember last week, back in Acts chapter 16, the first day was when he went down to the river and Lydia got saved. That was the first day that he met the Philippians until now that he's in prison. And so before we go any further, we're going to talk about joy. Okay, what is joy? Joy is one of those hard things to define. I think you know when you don't have joy. And so this is my best attempt to define joy. And so I want to kind of break down this definition. So joy is a deep-seated sense of contentment and satisfaction in Christ alone that does not depend upon circumstances but rests in the unchanging and sovereign grace of God. Now let's let's talk about that definition for a moment. Again, this is just my, my definition of joy. It's just the best thing I can come up with. First of all, Let's just break down this definition. Joy is deep-seated. In in other words, joy is not surface level. Joy is not fleeting happiness. Joy doesn't come and go. It's something that God puts deep in your heart. And and from that deep sense of joy comes a contentment, comes a peace, comes a, a rest, a confidence. And joy does not depend upon circumstances. Where's Paul when he's, when he's writing this letter? He's in prison. Okay. Happiness often it determines or is based upon our circumstances. If things are going good, we're happy. If things are going bad, we're not happy. Joy, you can be joyful in the midst of suffering, joyful in the midst of really, really bad situations. So it doesn't depend on circumstances. It's deep-seated. It's something God puts there. And then joy ultimately just rests in the sovereignty of God. God's unchanging, God's sovereign, God's got it all worked out. And because he's sovereign, because he's got it all worked out, I can rest in that and he can give me that joy. And so joy is something that the Lord puts in you, deep-seated, not based upon circumstances, sense of contentment, trusting in the sovereignty of God. So Nehemiah 8.10 is one of my favorite verses from Nehemiah. The joy of the Lord is is your strength. The joy of the Lord is your strength. Now, notice what brings Paul joy. The partnership in the gospel. Partnership in the gospel. Paul says, listen, when we partner together in the gospel, that brings me joy. And so we're going to do some basic definitions tonight. So first definition, what's joy? Joy is deep-seated, sense of contentment, sense of, of calm, of rest, of peace, and the sovereignty of God It doesn't depend upon circumstances. Okay, what's the gospel? Does anybody know what the word gospel means? Good news, okay? So gospel, okay? So what is the gospel? 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preach to you, which you received and which you stand, and by which you're being saved If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered of to you as of first importance what I also received. And first importance, okay, what did Paul receive of first importance? This is the sum and substance of the gospel. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. So what is the gospel? If somebody were to ask you what is the gospel, I'd give you a really short answer. It is the historical event of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. It's that simple. It's the good news 
of the historical event of Jesus's death, burial, and resurrection. Now, all the implications that flow from that, obviously, but at its basic form, the gospel is that message that's based upon a historical reality of what Jesus did. There, there's, so this is a summary passage here in 1 Corinthians of the gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ according to the scriptures. Now, Galatians, there's, a, there's another little summary statement of the gospel that Paul begins the book of Galatians with. Galatians 1, 4 through 5, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of God our Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Now, I like this definition of the gospel. Here's another definition of the gospel. So if we take 1 Corinthians, it's the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. If we take Galatians, it's the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus to save us from this present evil age according to God's will to God's glory. So what's the gospel? It's God's will and God's glory for Jesus to die for our sins and rise again. And so Paul here in Philippians says, I've got great joy because, look at there. So so verse 5, when you see the word because, pay attention when you read your Bible. Your English translations give you good, good translations there. What does because mean? The purpose. You can ask the question, why is Paul joyful in this prayer? Why does Paul make this prayer with joy? Because, verse 5, your partnership in the gospel. Partnership. The word partnership is the Greek word koinonia, which can often mean fellowship or communion. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to challenge you. Oftentimes when we think of fellowship, what do we think of? Eating a potluck in a fellowship hall, okay? The word koinonia, when you actually look at what's used in the New Testament, often was tied with financial giving and financial blessing. Koinonia. So the question is, how did the Philippian church participate in the gospel. How do they participate with Paul? Well, we know how they participated because Romans and 2 Corinthians tell us how they participated. They participated by giving financially to the Jerusalem church out of extreme poverty. If you remember, the churches in Macedonia and Achaia, which would have been the Thessalonian church and the Philippian church, they gave out of extreme poverty. The Corinthian church, not so much. Um, so in Romans 15, 26, for Macedonia and Achaia, that's where Philippi is, have been pleased to make some contribution, there's the Greek word koinonia, for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. The word contribution there is the word koinonia. It's more than just fellowship. It's, it's partnership, it's fellowship that has some backbone to it. There's actually some, some financial backing that, that Paul's saying this church is doing. They're, they're giving to the, to the needs of the church in Jerusalem. And then in 2 Corinthians 8, 3-4, they gave according to, and he's talking again about the Philippian church and the Thessalonian church, the churches of Macedonia and Achaia. They gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. Koinonia. So Paul says, listen, the way you're partnering in the gospel is Philippian church, you're giving financially to the needs of other churches 
in Jerusalem. And that's bringing me great joy that even in extreme affliction and extreme poverty, you're not just saying we're with you, Paul, or we're saying we're with you, churches. We're actually giving financially to help. We're partnering in the gospel and the advancement of the gospel. And then in verse... Yes, the Philippian church was, yeah, the Philippian church and the Thessalonian church were extremely poverty-stricken, and they gave out of poverty to the relief of the church in Jerusalem. And so, yeah, it is real significant because the Corinthian church was not giving, and they were the most well-off. And Paul basically in 2 Corinthians tells the Corinthian church, hey, Corinth, you got these other churches over here. You got Philippi, and you got the Thessalonian church. And you guys are well off, Corinth, but these churches are not well off, and they're giving out of their poverty, and you're not. So be like these churches over here that are giving out of their poverty. Um, yes, so the partnership. And then verse 6 is a, is a theological, powerful statement about God's work in their lives. I am sure of this. When, when, when somebody's sure of this, what does that mean? I'm confident. I'm sure of this. I have a strong conviction. What's Paul's strong conviction? What's he sure of? That he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. What was that good work? We saw it last week, right? Paul opened... Or, Paul preached to Lydia and God opened her heart. That was the good work. The demon-possessed girl was freed. That was a good work. The Philippian jailer trusted in Christ. That was the good work. So let's ask the question, what is the good work that God began, began in them? Okay. The, that he began. What did God start in them? Well, basically, the good work that God began in them was, was sovereign grace and regeneration. God saved them. God regenerated them. God gave them grace. God reached down and saved them by his grace. He started that good work. Okay, if God starts a work of grace in you, what does this passage say? It's up to you to finish it, right? You better make sure you finish it and don't lose your salvation, right? You better cross your fingers and hope to die that you don't sin so far beyond God's grasp that he kicks you out of heaven, right? What does it say? I am sure that he who began a good work in you will, will do what? Bring it to completion. He'll finish the work he started in you at the day of Christ Jesus. Now, what's the day of Christ Jesus? When Jesus returns. Or you go to heaven first, whichever one that is. So this is called the perseverance of the saints. And it's crucial for us to grasp because here's, here's my point. If you understand the doctrine of perseverance, the doctrine of eternal security, it will increase your joy. If you fear you're going to lose your salvation, there's not a lot of joy. There's a lot of anxiety. If you fear that you can fall out of God's good graces, there's not a lot of joy. There's fear. There's anxiety. So let me give you a definition. This is from our, our statement of faith. Not the whole statement, but just let me give you a definition of what the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints means. Those whom God the Father 
has elected and those for whom Jesus the Son has died and those for whom the Spirit has given the new birth can neither totally nor finally lose their salvation but shall certainly persevere to the end and be eternally saved. It's Trinitarian. The Father chose you and Jesus died for you and the Holy Spirit regenerated you. The Holy Trinity will make sure that you can't lose that salvation. Now, let's make sure we don't misunderstand what this doctrine means. Okay, I've said this over the, many times over the years. This doctrine does not mean that everyone who at one time professes faith will endure to the end, but only true believers who are possessors of faith. You see the difference there? Let's just stop right there. You can profess faith in Christ. You can walk an aisle. You can get baptized. You can say a prayer. You can, you can profess faith in Christ outwardly, but not truly actually have faith in Christ inwardly. So the doctrine of eternal security does not mean that every single person who just makes a decision goes to heaven, only those who are truly saved. It also does not mean this. It also does not mean that the true believers can't fall into times of grievous sins or a season of disobedience. Let me just ask you, can true Christians commit major sins? Yes. Can there be a season of disobedience or backsliding? Here's the point. If you are a true Christian, because God loves you as a father, he may discipline you to get you back on track. God loves you so much, he doesn't want you to go down that path. He may discipline you to bring you back. And so if you're truly saved, you can never fully lose your salvation. But God may discipline you. If you're going off the, if you're going off the rails and you're one of his children, he's going to make sure you get back on the rails. And it can be painful for him to yank you back on. But he's doing it because he loves you and he's bringing you back. Okay, so what God started in you, sovereign regeneration, born again, giving you salvation, He's going to complete it. He's not going to leave you to your own devices to try to figure it out. Now, let's look at some scriptures. There, there, there's two sides of the same coin, okay? One side of the coin is called eternal security. The other side of the coin is called perseverance of the saints. Okay. Eternal security is God's working to make sure we don't lose our salvation. You can never lose your salvation. Perseverance of the saints is that we actually endure to the end, we actually continue in the Christian life, but the only way we do that is because God makes sure that that happens. Okay, so let's look at a couple of these verses here. So John 6, 37 through 39. All that the Father gives me will come to me. This is Jesus speaking. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he's given, but raise it up on the last day. So let me ask you a question. If you were given to Jesus by the Father, will Jesus lose you? What does he say here? No, I'm not going to lose you. I'm not going to lose any that have been given to me by the Father. Jesus will not lose them. It's his will to keep you saved, to not lose you. And then in John 10, 
27 through 30. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who's given them to me is greater than all and no one's able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Now, let me just, let's just look at that verse, okay? I want to go slow tonight because I want to, the reason I'm camping out on these verses about eternal security is because it will increase your joy. If you understand the truth that you can't be lost or you can't get out of the grip of the Savior or Jesus is not going to lose you, that increases your joy, okay? So Jesus says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. Now, what does the word perish mean? The word perish literally means to die in hell, to suffer in hell. And the word never that Jesus uses there is what we call a double negative in the original language. What's a double negative? (laughs) It mean, I could translate this way. No, I give them eternal life and they will know not ever, ever, ever perish. It's almost like the way Jesus is saying it. They'll know not ever. They're never, 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 never. Two negatives together. They're never, never, not never, ever, ever going to perish. It's basically the way Jesus is saying it. Why? Because you're in whose hand? Jesus' hand and you're also in who else's hand? The Father's hand. You're in the double grip. I and the Father are one. No one can come and take you out of that. If Jesus saved you, he's going to hold you. The Father's going to hold you. He's not going to lose you. He's going to keep you to the end. That should increase your joy to know that nothing can come between you and your Savior. And then Paul says it in Romans 8, 35 through 39. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. As it's written, for your sake, we're being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul bends over backwards to say, listen, there's really nothing in all of creation, even you. Now, let me just address an uh, objection here from our more Arminian-leaning brothers and sisters that would say, okay, I know that you can't lose your salvation, but you can choose to walk away from your salvation. That's what they'll say. God, God will hold you as long as you want to be held, but you can choose to get out of God's hand and walk away. How would you respond to that? Is God going to let you walk away? If God started it, is God going to finish it? God holds you, is he going to keep you held? Can even you separate yourself from God's love? No, you can't. Nothing in all of creation can separate you from the love of Christ. You're, you're secure in his grip. Okay, let's, let's look at 1 Peter 1, 3-5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. God is guarding you. He's keeping you. 
He's got your reservation on reserve in heaven. It's never going to go away. He's making sure that you will, by his power, have eternal life. So those are the verses that teach eternal security, that God keeps us in his grip. Now, there's also verses that talk about how we will endure to the end. We will remain Christians. We won't fall away. Now, here's the point. The reason we won't fall away is because God makes sure we won't fall away. He will work in us to make sure we won't fall away. He will sustain us to the end. He will complete the work. So 1 Corinthians 1, 8 through 9. He will sustain you to the end. Guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, God is faithful by whom you were called in the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. God is faithful to sustain you to the end. What does it mean to sustain you to the end? Make sure you get to heaven. Make sure you remain a Christian. Does it say you sustain yourself to the end? No, it says God will sustain you to the end. God is the one that's faithful to do that. We're faithless all the time. There's no way we could keep ourselves saved. If it were true that I could lose my salvation, it's invariably possible that it would happen every day. If it were true. Because there's no way I can keep myself saved. Only God does that for us. 1 Thessalonians 5. 23 and 24. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless when? At the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who is faithful, or he who calls you is faithful, he will surely do it. Both these verses talk about who's the one that's faithful? God's the one that's faithful. He will surely do it. What's he gonna do? Make sure that you're blameless on that day. Sustain you to the end, get you to the end, get you to heaven. And then Jude, verses 24 and 25, Now to him who's able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. God will sustain you to the end. God will make sure you get to the end. I love this little statement from Charles Spurgeon. He says this, If ever it should come to pass that sheep of Christ might fall away, my fickle, feeble soul, alas, would fall a thousand times a day. What's he saying there? If there's a possibility that you could lose your salvation, Spurgeon's saying, I'm going I'm to I'm I'm lose my salvation a thousand times a day if it was true. But it's not true. Even in the midst of our deep sin, in our weakness, God is the one who's faithful. God's the one that's holding us in his grip. God is the one that's keeping us secure. God is the one who started that work. God is the one who completes that work. God is the one that sustains us to the end. God is faithful. And Paul is reminding us here in verse 6 that the work that God began, he will complete it. And it's in the context of joy. Now, should that not produce joy in you? Especially when you feel discouraged or you feel like you're not seeing any improvement in your life or you're not seeing a lot of um, grace. We'll talk about that in a little bit later on. So, first of all, Paul is praying and giving thanks for their partnership, 
in the gospel. He's like, I, I, I've got joy in my heart as I'm praying. Number one, because of your partnership in the gospel. Philippian church, you have contributed financially to the advancement of the gospel. You're partnered with me in the gospel. I'm in prison. I'm writing back to you. I'm excited and joyful for the partnership in the gospel. Number two, I am so thankful for God's persevering grace that he started the work in you. He's going to complete it. You're going to be eternally secure. That's what's bringing me great joy. And now, thirdly, Paul's going to get very affectionate in his language about how he feels. This is where Paul's feelings, and sometimes we're like, you know, facts don't care about your feelings. It's important at times to hear how the apostle felt about this church. And he he uses very strong language. So let's look and see what he says. Verse 7. It is right for me to what? What does your Bible say? Feel this way about you. Because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. Paul says, listen, I'm in prison, and I'm defending the gospel, and I have great love for you, church. I have deep affection for you, church. It's right for me to feel this way about you. Now, what does it mean when Paul says... His defense and confirmation of the gospel. One of the reasons that Paul's in prison is because he had to make a defense before the tribunals and before the authorities for the gospel. Um, in Acts twenty five sixteen, towards the end of the book of Acts, I answered them that it was not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused met the accusers face to face and had opportunity to make his defense concerning the charges laid against him. Remember what I said last week? Paul appealed to his Roman citizenship. Paul was going to make a defense as to why he was being in prison. He was going to defend the God. When he got before, I think really Paul wanted to get all the way to Caesar. I think Paul wanted to get before the top guy in the land. And when Paul was in prison and before Caesar was going to do whatever Caesar, I think Paul was going to share the gospel with him. Say, this is my last opportunity before you behead me. I'm going to share the gospel. That's just my opinion. I think Paul wanted to go all the way to the top because he went to Felix and to Festus and he kind of went up the chain until they finally imprisoned him. But every time he went there, he was always defending the gospel. 2 Timothy 4.16, At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. They had not be charged against them. The first time Paul had to make his defense, everybody bailed on him. And so Paul's making a defense while he's in prison. He's joyful. He feels that way. And look at verse 8. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Paul uses the strongest words possible to describe his affection for the church. That word affection is literally the depths of your guts spilling out in joyful love. It's, it's a strong word. It's like Paul saying, from the bottom of my heart, from the depth of my being, I just yearn for you. I, I have this passionate love for you, church. Now, let's ask the question. What creates that level of affection between a man who's in prison and a people that aren't his family. You can understand a husband and wife having that. 
a parent and a child having that, a brother or sister, or even a really close friend. But let's just ask the question, what creates that affection? And Paul's already said it. What creates that affection? Their partnership in the gospel. Jesus creates that affection, that love. You see, there's nothing more tender than being united in the gospel. Yes. Yeah, your sanctified imagination. Yeah. 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 Oh yeah, a great great point. Paul, I mean, Paul's probably thinking back to Lydia, he's thinking back to the jailer, he's thinking back to the slave girl. They met in that home, Lydia's home. We don't know how long Paul met there, but at the end of that that portion in chapter 16 of verse Act and Acts Paul goes back after he gets out of jail and he encourages the church in Lydia's home. And so they probably had sweet time of fellowship, sweet time of communion. And so I would just say this, um, a lot of worldly organizations these days are trying to create diversity, unity, equity, togetherness, all these things for people to get along. Worldly organizations. What is the only place or people where you can experience true unity, affection, getting along. It's in the church, among God's people. You can't can't manufacture it because it comes from our partnership in the gospel. And so I just want to challenge us with this. So sometimes tonight I'll be preaching as opposed to teaching, so I put my preaching points up there. So as we move forward in advancing the gospel as a church, I don't want us to forget that we're in this together. Together, there's no Lone Ranger mentality for the Christian. Christ has called us to live together as his body. And here's my, here's my plea for us. Would we be a model of love and fellowship and unity as we move forward as a church to advance the gospel? I want you just to evaluate. You know, this is not a time to discuss, but I just want you to think. Can you truly say those words? about other believers that are not part of your family? Did I yearn with you for affection because you're my brother and sister in Christ and I love you so much in Christ that we have this bond? Sadly, I think in our churches today, there's so much individualism and so much busyness and so much stuff that we don't take the time to build those relationships where we can truly say to other people, you know what, I, I, I miss you. I haven't seen you. You know, here's the thing. There are some people, and they may be watching tonight, and if, they're, if you're watching tonight and you're one of those that are watching, there are some people that have not come back to church since COVID. They have, they have not come back for whatever reasons, and I don't fault them for that, and that's between them and the Lord and, and for whatever health reasons. But I can say this, I miss them as members of Emmanuel. I text them, I call them, I try to reach out to them, but there's something special about seeing your face and your body here on Sunday morning and going across during our time of welcome and seeing people hugging and and greeting each other and and seeing you in the hallways and seeing you in the foyer and seeing you on the front porch and and just, I just, there's those those people that haven't come back that that are just missing that. 
And um, if you're watching and We'd love to have you come back. So we, we miss you. That's what, that's what we're saying. Because a lot of these people still watch online, but it's just I miss seeing their faces. I miss giving them a hug. I miss talking and seeing how things are going, okay? So, so that's, Paul's, that's Paul's Thanksgiving, okay? Let's now move into Paul's prayer. The real the substance of his prayer um, in verses 9 through 11. And how do we know it's a prayer? Because verse 9 starts, It is my prayer. Is this a prayer? Pretty explicit. This is my prayer. That, okay, what's the content of the prayer? It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Okay, we see an actual prayer request by Paul because he says, it is my prayer that, and you kind of have to work through the original language here to, to find out like what are the requests and what are, what are, what's, what are the requests and what are sub-requests and what are connected together. And really when you look at the, the Greek grammar, there's two requests that Paul gives and some things tied to those. Here's the first request. This is the first prayer request. And again, when we went through the 30-day prayer journey a few weeks ago, I know it ended, we were going through the prayers of the Bible. And it's interesting what Paul prays for. Are these things you pray for? Okay, so this is what Paul prayed for. First of all, this is his first prayer request. He prays that their love would abound more and more. Their love would abound. Now, as I was thinking about this, I had to kind of work through. I understand what it means for love to abound. But notice how Paul couches it. How does Paul define it? With knowledge and discernment. So let's ask a question. How does knowledge and discernment relate to love? We know if Paul just said, I pray for your love to abound, we know what that means. We need to be loving each other more. But he, he says, I want your love to abound with knowledge and discernment. Okay. So that's a question I, I, I kind of wrestled with this week. What or how does love relate to knowledge and discernment? And so let's, let's kind of unpack that. So first of all, the word knowledge conveys more of an experiential knowledge of Christ instead of mere head knowledge. Now, here's where Paul does not define the love. Is he talking about our love for each other growing more and more? Or our love for Christ growing more and more? Yes. I think in the context of knowledge and discernment, it has to be primarily about our love for Christ growing more and more. Because think about this way. The more you know Jesus, the more you will love Jesus. So there's a direct correlation between the more you know Jesus, the more you love him. Okay, so what if I told Dawn I loved her, my wife? I love you, Dawn. In the next six months, I lived in a hotel, never came home for dinner, didn't call her, didn't ask how, what was going on in her life. Would that be love or would we need some serious marriage counseling? <laughs> it's one thing to say you love someone, but how do you grow in love? 
You grow in love by getting to know each other more. So how do you grow in your love of Jesus? Not just head knowledge. That word knowledge is not, you, you do take in the scriptures. You've got to read the scriptures, but it goes beyond just, okay, I'm taking in information. The, the word Paul used there is an experiential knowledge of Jesus. That comes through reading the scriptures, but it also comes through prayer and spending time with him. In other words, the more you spend time with Jesus, the more you get to know Jesus and the more your love for him grows. And that's Paul's request. My prayer request for you is that you would love Jesus more by knowing him more. And how do you know Jesus more? You spend more time with him. You read your Bible. It's not rocket science. The more you spend time in prayer and Bible study, the more you get to know Jesus. And the more your love for him grows. And and you get to understand some things. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2.12, Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit, the Holy Spirit, who's from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. That we might really the word there is we have we might have knowledge we might gain understanding and knowledge. So Paul's first request is that our love would grow more and more. How? Our love for Jesus would grow more as we get more knowledge of Jesus, which involves reading our Bibles, but it also involves an experiential knowledge. Now the second thing he says there in verse nine is with knowledge and all discernment. What's discernment? How's discernment different than knowledge? Okay, there's a difference between knowledge and discernment. The word discernment, when you look at that in the original language there, it really means the practical living out of that knowledge in real life situations. You can have knowledge but not know how to apply that knowledge. So discernment is more, how do you live it out? How do you make decisions? How, does, how do you have wisdom? How does it practically look? Um, how do you discern? How do you discriminate? How do you know right from wrong? How do you make decisions? Um, Hebrews 5.14, but solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. So, when you think about love, Paul could have just said, I want your love to abound more and more. But he tethers that love with two definers, knowledge and discernment. Okay, so there's two extremes in the Christian life. And we talked about this a few weeks ago when we talked about worshiping God in spirit and truth. Okay, so one extreme is that we base everything on our feelings and experiences. The whole Christian life is based on experience, it's based on feelings, it's, that's emotionalism. So your love is growing more and more, but there's, there's no discernment or there's no knowledge to it. It's just, you're just kind of living off your feelings. And a lot of Christians live off their feelings. A lot of Christians base their Christianity off their feelings, off experience. I've got to go to this concert, I've got to go to this conference, I've got to have this church experience, I've got to have the thrill of the experience to sustain me. And then it leads to kind of an emotionalism. That's not what Paul's saying here. That's one extreme. The other extreme is you can have knowledge for knowledge's sake, but no love, which leads to a coldness or an academic atmosphere. You have a lot of knowledge, 
but you're kind of stuffy and you're kind of stuck up and you're kind of judgmental and there's no love. So the antidote to, is to have biblical knowledge that is accompanied by discernment which overflows in love for God and others. So it's not just, don't you hear people say this in the progressive church, let's just love everybody. It's all about love. Yes, we need to love. But how does Paul pray for that love? It's got to be love that has knowledge. And it's got to have love that has discernment. And so what did Jesus say to the woman at the well in John 4, 23 and 24? But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Heartfelt, passion, solid theology. Your love has to abound with knowledge and discernment. Okay? So that's Paul's first request. Your, I, I want your love for Jesus to grow. And how that grows is you've got to get more knowledge of Jesus, not only through the Bible, but experientially. And that translates into practical decision-making and wisdom and discernment. That you're not just accepting everything that comes down the pike, that you have some true discernment. Okay, a second prayer request is that they would demonstrate the fruit of a righteous life in light of Christ's return. So it's not just all about love, it's also about how you live your life. Notice what he says there, verse 10. So that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Verse 11, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. The fruit of righteousness. Now, I'm going to... I'm going to spend some time on this because we don't often talk about this in Christian circles. It's a very important teaching. You and I produce fruit by the power of the Holy Spirit as a result of your position as a justified or righteous saint. So let me ask you a question. What does verse 6 say? Go back and read verse 6. He who began a good work in you. Let me just ask you the question. If God has begun the good work in you, will there be the fruit of righteousness? Yes. Now here's where we get in trouble in the Christian life. Okay, this is where we get in a little bit of problems. Nowhere or very few places does Paul quantify how much fruit or to the extent of the fruit. But there's got to be fruit. And there's got to be righteousness. Okay? So let me give you a quote from Ian Hamilton. I like Ian Hamilton. He's written a lot of books. He's, I think he's from Scotland um, or he's from England. He's a pastor. He's a Presbyterian pastor over there, but he's written some books. But he, 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 wrote, he wrote this. I like what he said. Where grace has savingly taken root in your soul, it will, it must, bring forth a harvest of righteousness. The harvest may well be profoundly lacking in quantity and quality, 
it may and surely will disappoint you. It has pleased the Lord not to give us steady, uninterrupted growth and grace. Rather, he's pleased to have us cry out to him, wait on him, seek his face, often amid trials, <clears throat> before he grants us to grow in the likeness of a Savior, if for no other reason than to humble us and keep us dependent upon him. We can become legalistic and start looking at other people's lives and saying, well, you're not producing enough fruit to prove that you're a Christian. I want to see your fruit. You become fruit inspectors. And usually what the fruit is is our, our opinion. There will be fruit of righteousness. Sometimes you won't see it. Sometimes you will see it. Sometimes you won't be where you want to be. And that will make you cry out to God to get you where he wants you to be so that you're dependent upon him. How does fruit grow? Some of you that are farmers, do you go plant the seed and it pops up the next day? Okay, we live in a, what I call a microwave magic world, don't we? We get upset when our TV, you know, like I don't eat TV dinners, but like, okay, think about this. <laughs> I remember when we got our first TV with a remote control. Okay, this was back in 1984. We got the remote control. And there was, that was back when there was like, what, four channels? Okay. And then we finally got, we got cable in 1986. I mean, the big old cable box. And, you know, we got, the first time I got to watch ESPN. And so, but now we get upset if we have to fast forward, like if we have to watch a commercial. Because now we have, you know, DVR, we can pause it. And, okay, so we want things done yesterday. Okay, so our whole world is, I got my smartphone, I got my app, I got put stuff in the microwave, I don't want to wait in line, I don't want to have to watch a commercial, I'll, I'll, I'll do, everything is instantaneously, this is what we wanted. And that translates into the Christian life. I want instantaneous results and instantaneous growth, and I want to see fruit. And how has God chosen, why is there a fruit metaphor? What, is, what does fruit mean? Slow, sometimes imperceptible, Long periods of waiting, watering, depending. But then if there's a seed, what will happen? There will be the fruit of righteousness. No seed, no fruit. There's got to be the seed of salvation in order for there to be the fruit of righteousness. So Paul here is praying that they would bear fruit in their lives. John the Baptist said it this way. He said, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. But we need to remember something about bearing fruit. It's totally spiritual and supernatural and something that God alone controls. Jesus said in John 15, 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me, you can do what? You can do nothing. We will bear no fruit of righteousness apart from our connection to Jesus. Do you see how those two prayer requests tie together? Think about it this way. The more you spend time in knowing Jesus as the vine, loving him, learning from him, being with him, connected to him, then you will what? Bear fruit. If you abide in me, you'll bear fruit. 
you will bear fruit to the extent that you abide in Christ. And so Paul's prayer is almost like abide in Christ, love Christ, spend time with Christ, and as a result, he'll, the Holy Spirit will produce that fruit. The Holy Spirit produces that fruit. It's the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5, 22 through 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. So in this second request, Paul's ultimate desire is that the Philippians would demonstrate holiness, fruit, and growth in demonstrable ways as they anticipate Christ's return. So let me ask you a question. Let's not talk about praying for others. Let's just ask, do you pray these things for yourself? These two things. Lord Jesus, I want to grow more and more in my love for you by gaining more knowledge of you. And Lord Jesus, I want to abide in you so that I can bear fruit and fruit that lasts. Do you pray that? This is a very specific prayer in the Bible that it would do well for us to pray because we can't go wrong when we pray the scriptures. And so Paul has two requests there. Number one, they would grow in love. Number two, they would have holy lives that bore fruit. Now notice in verse 11 what the whole issue is. What does it all, what does it all redound to? Verse 11. Filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. And how does it end? To the glory and praise of God. In other words, this is all for God's glory. It glorifies God for you to grow in love. It glorifies God for you to bear fruit. What's the ultimate chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. 1 Corinthians 10.31, you better have this highlighted, underlined, memorized in your Bible. (laughs) So whatever you eat or drink or whatever you do, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. And then 2 Corinthians 5, 9, so whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. It's our aim to please God, our, our aim to glorify God. So if, if we look at verses 3 through 11, Paul's introduction, his thankfulness, this statement about eternal security, his prayer. We can summarize it this way. This is the main point of of this first section, verses 8 through 12. Paul expresses a deeply heartfelt joy for the Philippians' active partnership in the gospel as a result of God's work of salvation in their lives. God started the work, and that work in their lives demonstrated in partnership with the gospel— Paul prays that they would have more love, they would have more fruit, and all of this brings Paul joy. Okay? Now, let's move into, we're just going to look at verses 12 through, um, actually 18, I don't know why I have 17 there, 12 through 18, Paul's prison experience. What's, Paul is going to kind of, he's done thanking them, are thanking the Lord, he's done praying. Now he's going to talk about what he's going through. Remember, he's in prison. He's in jail in Rome, 
writing back to this church. Now, I just want to remind you something. Paul says in 2 Timothy 2.9, for which I'm in suffering bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God's not bound. Paul's like, I may be in prison, but God's word's not, not chained. I'm going to write this letter and it's going to get to you. So let's, let's read verses 12. Let's just look at verses 12 through um, 14 at this point. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me, being put in prison, has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Paul said, this is an ironic thing. What does Paul say? Actually, my imprisonment's a great thing. You would think this is a, a really bad thing to happen to me to be put in jail, to be put in prison. But really, it has served to advance the gospel. Notice what he says there. Verse 12, it has happened to advance the gospel. That word advance means to blaze a trail before an army, to pave the way for ministry. In other words, it is actually under God's sovereign plan that what Paul being in prison is actually paved the way for a great ministry. Now, in two ways. Paul says, listen, this, me being in prison has done two things. Number one, it has helped in evangelizing the unsaved. And number two, it's helped in encouraging the saved. Evangelizing the unsaved, encouraging the saved. Okay, how has it helped in evangelizing the unsaved? Look at verse 13. So that... It has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Okay, that's just like Paul, isn't it? Is, is Paul wasting opportunity? Paul's in, Paul says, listen, if I'm going to be in jail, everybody's going to know about Jesus. I don't care who comes into contact with me. Notice what he says there, the whole imperial guard. Does anybody have, like, somebody else have the word praetorium or something like that, the praetorium guard or the palace guard? Yeah, Paul's like, okay, if I'm going to be here, you're going to hear about Jesus. So all these prison guards, all the imperial guard, they know, they've heard the gospel from Paul's mouth. Paul, just be, Paul could have been like this, I'm in prison, I'm going to mind my own business, I'm going to be bitter because God allowed this to happen, and I'm just going to stay here, and I'm just going to just be upset and bitter about it and not do anything. But Paul says, listen, no, I'm going to take advantage of this opportunity, and I'm going to evangelize all the unsaved people around me. Okay. Now, that boldness of Paul in prison to evangelize did something for the believers. Okay, So not only did it evangelize the unsaved, but secondly, it encouraged or edified the saved. What did Paul's boldness in evangelism do to those that were already saved? Look at verse 14. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. What's Paul saying? My boldness in sharing the gospel has been an encouragement to other believers to be bold in sharing the gospel. They see my example and they see what I'm doing and they're out there being bold. Now, let's talk about boldness in sharing the gospel. 
Why do we not want to share the gospel? Why do we not want to be bold? We're afraid, aren't we? We're afraid of rejection. We're afraid of what people say. We're afraid they're going to ask a question we don't know. We're afraid to take the risk. We're just downright afraid. And I understand that because, I mean, all of us have fear. I don't think, I don't know of anybody that's like a natural evangelist that just, I mean, there's some of those people you meet, they're like, they just naturally or supernaturally are able to just talk to people about Jesus. But for most of us, I told you the story about going to Subway that time. I'll tell it again. So back during COVID, I think it was like right in the height of COVID. And I think, you know, I think if Subway wasn't open, you can only go in there. And so um, I walked into Subway and there was nobody there in line. There was the girl at the counter and she had the tattoo that says, only God can judge me. And I thought, oh, that brings up a great conversation. I, I'm going to start a conversation with her and say, that's an interesting tattoo. Tell me, how, tell me about that. And I was about ready to do it. I'm like, this is going to be a great opportunity. And then I thought, you know what? I'm hungry and I want to just go home and eat my sandwich. There was nobody else in there. I could have like stayed. So like I gave her the money and I left. And I got in my car and I'm like halfway down the street. And I'm like, Sean, you're an idiot. You're a jerk. You should have just stayed in there and asked her about it and started a spiritual conversation. But you were too selfish or you were too scared or you were too busy. So even like those opportunities, we don't, we don't, we don't, we, we pass up. But let me just remind you, Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For it, the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Boldness is something we need to pray for. The early church prayed for boldness. It's interesting, in Acts chapter 4, when Peter and John were in prison, um, the early church gathered in Acts 4, 29-31, and this is part of their prayer. Now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. That's their prayer. Lord, help us to continue to speak with boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders which are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed... The place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Here's, the, here's what you see. You need to pray for boldness and the Holy Spirit gives you boldness and sometimes you just need to open your mouth. You will never know unless you open your mouth. And the Holy Spirit will give you that boldness. Paul had to pray for boldness. In Ephesians chapter 6, 18-20, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And also for me, pray for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly, to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Paul says, pray for me that I may have boldness. He's in the same prison that he's writing Ephesians that he's writing Philippians. He had to pray for boldness to share with all these, praetorian, all these palace guards. You know what the word boldness means in the original language? It really means like a, an other earthly freedom of speech that comes upon you through the power of the Holy Spirit. Let me just ask you this. Have you ever had an opportunity where you're sharing the gospel and after it's done you realize that wasn't me? There was something happening where words were just coming out and I don't really know what happened there, but it was, I had some type of otherworldly boldness that just was not me. That's really what that word means. 
that you can speak with not rude, but bold. There's a difference between being rude and bold. It doesn't mean you're yelling at people or screaming at people. It just means that the Holy Spirit's empowered you to take a stand and say, I'm going to open my mouth and I'm going to, to share. So we need boldness, but Paul also prays for something else. I, not only do you need boldness, but look at what he says in Colossians 4, 3 through 4. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I'm in prison, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Here in Colossians, he doesn't say with boldness like he does in Ephesians. He says clear. So there's two things we need to be praying for, boldness and clarity. You can be bold but not clear. And you can be clear and not bold. You really need both. I want to be clear in my presentation of the gospel. And I want to be bold. And we need to be praying for that. And so Paul here in in Philippians is saying, listen, I, I prayed for boldness. God gave me boldness. The Holy Spirit gave me boldness. I've been letting everybody know. And this has been an encouragement to the other Christians that they have boldness now. They, they've looked at this and they're getting more bold and they're sharing the gospel. Um, on the way out of the church, we have that sign from Spurgeon. I'll give you the whole quote. He said these words, If sinners will be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our bodies. And if they will perish, let them perish with our arms about their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, at least let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions and let no one go there unwarned and unprayed for. That's boldness. So think about the words here. Paul's blazing a trail with the gospel. Paul's praying for boldness. Paul's evangelism is leading to boldness. Have you ever heard the statement from St. Francis of Assisi that's really bad theology? Preach the gospel always, if necessary, use words. That's like saying, make a free throw. And use a basketball if necessary. Buy a Big Mac at McDonald's and, and, and use money if necessary. Go, go shoot an elk and use bullets if necessary. I mean, you cannot preach the gospel without words. Now, I know what he means. And some people wonder if it was even attributed to St. Francis of Assisi. The point of the quote is you need to have a lifestyle that backs up your, your, your confession. But the point is nobody very rarely has come to Christ by just looking at your life. Because even if they come and say, there's something different about your life, what do you have to do? You have to explain it. You can't just say, yeah, there is. Figure it out. You don't do that. Even if somebody says, you know what, I see something different about your life. You, you deal with adversity differently. You, you seem to have a joy. What is it about you? You still have to, with words at that point, share the gospel. Here's how God has worked in my life. Here's how he can work in your life. Here's what the gospel is. You've you got to use words. Okay? So Paul's boldness has led to their boldness. He's doing evangelism in prison that's encouraging them to do evangelism. And then in verses 19, I mean, sorry, verses 15 through 18, you have this, this kind of weird situation of these people that we really don't know who they are. But let's read this, and Paul mentions this. The original audience would have known who they are, but we're, we're kind of left to guess. Some indeed preach Christ from envy 
in rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Paul says there are some people that are preaching Christ from impure motives. They're doing it out of envy. They're doing it out of rivalry. They're they're doing it selfishly. They're preaching Christ with wrong motives. Draw attention to themselves. Who, Who knows why they're doing it, but they're impure motives. And he lists those there. Envy, rivalry, selfish ambition. That's why they do it. Others, he says, preach Christ from proper motives. They do it out of goodwill. They do it out of love. That They're supporting Paul who's in prison. But I want you to notice something in verse 16. You don't quite get this from your English translations, but let me give you what the original language says here. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here. Put here for the defense of the gospel. What does it mean that that Paul was put there in prison? Did it just happen by happenstance? No. What that word put here means is God sovereignly predestined it to happen. God ordained for Paul to be in prison. Do you remember what Jesus told Paul on the road to Damascus when he knocked him off the horse and blinded him? In Acts 9.16, he says, I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Paul, you persecuted Christians before your conversion, and as you are now saved, I'm calling you to an apostolic ministry that's going to require suffering, and I'm going to ordain that to happen. So you being put in prison is not an accident. It's something that's, that, that's planned to happen. Um, and then Paul even says this in Galatians. 1, 15 through 16. When he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone. God set Paul apart before birth to be an apostle and to suffer. So suffering in prison, Paul was put there. You can say it this way, God, Paul was put there by God. Paul was in prison, all part of God's predestined plan as an apostle. He was, I mean, we can look at the human agency. Yeah, he was arrested. There were human things involved in that, but ultimately it was all part of God's plan. But interestingly, you would think Paul's reaction would be, I really don't like those guys that are preaching from selfish ambition. They need to be rebuked. They need to be silenced. They need to be condemned. I'm going to speak out against them. But, but what does he do? Look at verse 20. Whoops, I'm, I'm back in Ephesians. <laughs> On the other page here, let me, my page got turned. Look at verse, yeah, verse 18. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Paul says, listen, they may be doing it from false motives and they may be doing it for false pretense. But one thing Paul doesn't say is that Paul doesn't say they have the wrong message. 
Paul says, Christ is proclaimed. So the message is correct. They're preaching the true gospel, but with wrong motives. And if they were preaching a false gospel, Paul would have gotten on them. He got on the Galatians for believing a false gospel. If it was a false gospel, Paul would have been in there guns blazing. But they were evidently preaching the true gospel just with wrong motives. And what Paul says is, listen, God's going to work out the motive issue. There's really nothing I can do from prison anyway. If they have wrong motives, let God work that out. One thing I do know is that Christ is being proclaimed and people are getting saved and the message is going forth. I can't deal with the motives of the people. I just know that the message is going out. And so in the end, what Paul's saying here is that God will deal with those who have improper motives. It's God's business to work things out in their lives, and it's not Paul's business. But how does Paul end it? It's very interesting. How does, how does Paul, what's the very last word there in verse 18? In this I, I rejoice. I have joy that Christ is being proclaimed even if these guys are jerks, or even if these people are doing it out of wrong motives. Now, how does this whole thing start? Go back to verse 4. How does it start and how does it end? I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, making my prayer with what? Joy. Joy starts this, and what ends it? Joy. I told you one of the key words that shows up in Philippians is joy. And Paul's in prison. So joy, 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 rejoice. What else is repeated? There's another word that's repeated over and over again in this passage besides joy. It's the other main theme. Gospel. Look at verse 5. Because of your partnership in the gospel until the first day until now. Verse 7. It's right for me to feel this way about you because I hold you in my heart for you're all partakers with me by grace, both in my imprisonment and in my defense and confirmation of the gospel. Verse 12, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Verse 16, the latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. Gospel, gospel, gospel. What was the gospel? We started with it. What is the gospel? It is the historical truth of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ by the will of God to the glory of God according to the scriptures. The good news of the gospel. And so Paul rejoices in their partnership, in their advancement, in their proclamation, in their boldness in the gospel. So what should bring us the most joy as Christians? Being together for the gospel. Not just the conference that we go to every two years. Being united in the gospel. Advancing the gospel. Preaching the gospel. Suffering for the gospel. What's the main theme in Philippians? We see it from the very beginning here. Sharing life together. United in the joy of the gospel. The gospel, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, and all the implications that flow from it should bring us great joy. Not just individually, but united together in partnership with that gospel. 
We're together in the gospel. We're proclaiming the gospel together. We're united in the gospel. We're advancing the gospel. We're, we're encouraging one another in the gospel. We may one day have to suffer together ultimately for the gospel. And doing that together should bring us joy as a church family so that we can be like Paul and say, you know what? My heart yearns for you. I have deep affection for those that I'm partners with in the gospel. Only the gospel of Christ can do that. Only Jesus can produce that joy, that partnership. Nothing else can. And so this is how Paul begins his letter from prison, reminding them of having joy in the gospel. So that's where we're going to end tonight. If there's other questions, we have a little bit of time, or you may get to get out a little bit early tonight. So what are some questions? And I don't know, is anybody... Has anybody been tracking on Facebook to see if anybody asked a question? Last week, somebody asked a question on Facebook. Tarina was monitoring that, and I I answered a Facebook question. What? No, that's not what Christ's Facebook. Questions, comments. I'm not taking any side remarks tonight, just questions or comments. Or observations. If not... We will be dismissed, and you'll have about 10 minutes to go hang out before you go get your kids, or you can go home early and beat the sterling traffic. (laughs) That's one awesome thing. We were in Denver on Monday. Well, we were in Loveland, and then we drove to the mountains to look at the trees, and we came back from, we came back through, like, I-70, coming down into Denver, you know, and Don's like, I'm so glad we don't live in this. And I thought, yeah, it takes me five minutes to get anywhere. <laughs> so, all right, well, let's pray, and then we'll, we'll be dismissed. Father, thank you for this, this time tonight. And Lord, we do want to have joy. We know we can't produce this joy. It has to come from you deep in our hearts. And only the gospel, the message, the good news of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, growing in Christ, lo- learning to love Christ more, and, and all the ways that we can, we can do that increase our love and our joy and and lord thank you that what you started in us you'll complete that having that eternal security brings us joy and being together gives us joy and lord help us to be bold in sharing the gospel so that others can know the joy that we have and so lord just help us to be people that are joyful uh, deep in our hearts it's only produced by the holy spirit with the fruit of the spirit help us to be joyful and we ask this in jesus name amen